You're listening to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast with Pastor Dave Coop. Today we're talking about the father who protects, the father who sees, watches, cares for his children. And we're going to use Genesis chapter 16 as our main chapter and also Psalm 23. So if you want to get ready, you can open your Bibles to Psalm 16, Psalm 23 as well. We'll go through those verses. Uh, In Psalm 23, David, the psalmist, talks about the Lord is my shepherd. And then when he says shepherd there, it's a word in the Hebrew, ra'ah, which means one who watches over, one who protects, one who sees. And he's referring to his Lord as the one who's watching over his life and protecting him. Now, that's the nature of God. God watches over us, protects us, sees everything that's going on, and he really cares about our life. When he says the Lord is my shepherd, he didn't say the Lord is a shepherd. That would be one of many shepherds. He says, no, no, this is my shepherd. He didn't say the Lord is the shepherd. That wouldn't be very personal. This is very personal. The Lord is my shepherd. And maybe you could say that with me today. The Lord is my shepherd. Would you say that with me? The Lord is my shepherd. It's very warm. It's very endearing. The Lord's my shepherd. Um, Before you met the Lord, I'm not sure what your shepherd was. People have different things that they hold on to before they find the Lord in their life. And I don't know what it's like for you, but I came across this poem that Max Licato used in his book, Traveling Light. And this is what somebody wrote before they found the Lord as their shepherd. They were their own shepherd. And maybe kind of like a Frank Sinatra thing. You know, remember Frank Sinatra's song, But I Did It My Way, and he's kind of his own shepherd. This is before the days of that. Somebody wrote this. They said, I am my own shepherd. I'm always in need. I stumble from mall to mall and shrink to shrink, seeking relief but never finding it. I creep through the valley of the shadow of death and fall apart. I fear everything from pesticides to power lines, and I'm starting to act like my mother. I go home. Uh, I go home and even my goldfish scolds me. I anoint my headache with extra strength Tylenol. My Jack Daniels runneth over. Surely misery and misfortune will follow me. And I will live in self-doubt for the rest of my lonely life. So hopefully that's not your psalm. I'd rather have David's psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Ra'ah, I shall not want. We, we live in a world where there are a lot of wants. You know, children today, they... Want more toys, more television time, more computers, more iPods. They want more things. Teenagers want more freedom and more popularity. Adults want more possessions, more personal time, so forth, more wages. And as we get older, we want more health, more friends, and we want more loyalty from our children. So we have these different wants in our life. Well, this verse says, I shall not want. Isn't that encouraging? You know, you can live... Anywhere in the world, you can live in Africa, you could live in Asia, you could live in Tuktyuktuk or Timbuktu, and you, wherever you live, you can be content. Paul said, I've had a lot and I was content. I've had little and I was content. I was not in want. It's not so much what you have, it's what has you. And you can be very content, not in want anywhere when you know the Lord is your shepherd because he's the one that's going to go with you. You've got your trust in him. I shall not want. There was a poem written by Jason Lehman a little while ago, and he said this about want. Describes a lot of people. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days in the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, colorful leaves and cool, dry air. 
Fall came, but it was winter I wanted, beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. Then my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. A lot of people live in that way. They're just, oh, I'm going to get up there. And you're always wanting, wanting, wanting. But, you know, when the Lord's our shepherd, we can live satisfied in our 20s. We can live satisfied in our teens. We can live satisfied in our 30s. We can be 60 and satisfied. We can be 80 and not in want. Paul said, I have learned to be content. Why? Because I know Jehovah Ra'ah, the God who is with me, I shall not want. It's going to be okay. That's a great place to live. That's a great life to enjoy. This verse goes on to say, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Notice the word leads me. He's not saying here, and again, if the Lord's our shepherd, that makes us the sheep, right? Does that make sense? He's a shepherd, we're the sheep. Now, folks, I don't know if you know a lot about sheep, but that's not the biggest compliment you're going to get in your life to be referred to as a sheep. Because we had sheep on the farm, and they're not the brightest animals on the lot. They're, as a matter of fact, they're quite dumb. They do a lot of dumb things, and uh, they remind us of us humans. We do a lot of dumb things. Well, maybe not you, but the rest of us. So we do a lot of dumb things. And so the Lord leads us. You drive cattle, but you don't drive sheep. He leads us. He leads us to beside still waters. He doesn't go to the water and say, Yo, the water's over here. No, no. He takes us to the water. He doesn't say, You know what? The water's just three blocks down. Get there. Have fun with that. Go get it. I hope you find your way there. He, he leads us. He, he goes ahead of us. Not too far ahead. He makes sure there's no danger as we go. He leads us. And then doesn't say he leads us just to the water he leads us beside and it's still waters he leads us beside the water you're thirsty you've got a little thirst meter in you some of you might be really thirsty now some of you are not thirsty at all you got thirst meters and he leads you beside still waters and when you're thirsty have a drink he doesn't lead you to the water take you by the nap of the neck and shove your head in the water okay now drink sometimes we do that with our friends we try to make them drink this living water i mean that doesn't work very good god doesn't do that to us the shepherd doesn't do that to us He watches over us, protects us. His nature is just to lead us beside the still waters. And when we're thirsty, we'll drink. The thirst meter goes off and says, I need a drink. And we drink. It's refreshing. It's good. It's still. It's not polluted. It's, 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 It's there, able, easy to drink. He leads us beside still waters. So this is the Jehovah, the Father, we're talking about today. Oftentimes people come to us and say, you know, I just don't understand this, why God's doing this, and what about this, and they, they have trouble understanding God. Let me distill it and make it really simple this morning or this afternoon for you. God is a heavenly Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, our Father which art in heaven. God's easy to figure out if you consider him to be a really, really good daddy. So ask yourself the question, would a good daddy do that? A good daddy will correct you. A good daddy will love you. A good daddy will protect you. A good father will be there for you. That's your heavenly father. Through the month of June, we want to talk about our father and his attributes. Understand him. 
He is a God who watches over us. He's a God who protects us. He's a God who's there. Jesus demonstrated the care of a shepherd. He told us he was a good shepherd in John 10, 11. It's there in your notes. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He demonstrated in Mark 6, 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people. He was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep. Not having a shepherd, he began to teach them many things. So our Lord really cares about us, and he watches over us. That's what his name literally means. Now this morning, or this afternoon, we're going to talk about an individual in the Bible. And we pick up her story in Genesis chapter 16, and her name is Hagar. Do we have any ladies here this afternoon named Hagar? Okay, no ladies. It's not a very popular name these days, Hagar. Any guys named Hagar? No, not so popular. We, we didn't have one in any of the services. And I, I had to ask that question for the next slide because the next slide talks about Hagar the Horrible. Ever heard of Hagar the Horrible? Hagar the Horrible, he's in the comic strip. I like Hagar. I like reading him anyhow. And uh, he's, you know, he's always in a bit of a mess. And it's not always his fault. He just kind of ends up in situations where he's not valued, not respected. In this particular one, he's yelling to his guys, pay attention. He tells them to do something. They all do it at once. Everything falls apart, and he ends up in a mess. And that's kind of Hagar's life. He's in a mess, and it's not always his fault. His wife doesn't always appreciate him. And well, if you've read his comic strip, that's Hagar the Horrible. Well, our Hagar today isn't a guy. It's a lady, and her life, like Hagar the Horrible, his li- her life gets pretty horrible, and she's in a bit of a mess. The good news is Jehovah Ra, the God who sees, is watching over her life and shows up in her life. And so we're going to talk about Hagar this morning. And the only reason I used the comic strip was to help you remember what we talked about this morning. You know, it's... Yeah, anyhow, it's, it's, just, it's just there to help us connect. All right, so Genesis chapter 16. Do you have your Bible with you this afternoon? Go to Genesis chapter 16, and uh, we'll look at um, the story of Hagar this afternoon. We pick it up in 16. Prior to this, Abraham got word from God that he was going to have a son. And it's about 10 years prior to this. Abraham's pretty excited. Uh, His wife's pretty excited they're going to have a a child. It's a big deal, bigger deal back then even than today to have children. I mean, that was your legacy. That was your inheritance. That was your descendants. It was so big to have family in those days. And God tells him, hey, you're going to have a child. Now, Sarai and him try for 10 years and no kids. Uh, Maybe you're here today as a couple and you aren't able to have children. There was a season in our life where we had trouble conceiving. It, it puts pressure on you, and it, there was pressure in our lives. We've prayed for couples that couldn't have children, and it, there's pressure. They've had it for 10 years, and God promised them. And so we have a story here where the Abram and Sarah say, you know, we'll help God out a bit. We'll, just, we'll help you out a bit, and God will help speed up the process. And uh, we know you made the promise, but we'll help fulfill the promise. We'll, do our, we'll, 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 we'll help you out on this. And if you've ever tried to help God out on something instead of being patient, it usually ends up to be a bit of a mess. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. But if you ever help God out, try to do it for him instead of letting God be God, you usually end up having to have him rescue you. Well, that's what happens in this story. So we pick it up in Genesis chapter 16. Sarai, later on she's called Sarah. So sometimes I get them, I'm flipping back and forth. So it's the same person, Sarai, later becomes Sarah. Abraham becomes Abraham. And you can read the rest of the story later on why it got changed. But anyhow, Sarah, Abraham's wife, 
had borne him no children. That's a big deal. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Hagar means stranger, foreign, or uncertain. And so she has this Egyptian maidservant. And uh, she got this Egyptian maidservant in all likelihood from Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh had given them a bunch of things and some servants when they left Egypt. That's a whole other story. That was a whole other mess. Anyhow, they left Egypt and they went back to Canaan. And Abraham's a rancher. He's got sheep. He's got goats. He's a big rancher. He's got a lot of servants. He's actually got, he's the patriarch of a pretty big tribe. And he's back in the countryside. So here's Hagar. Hagar would have worked for Pharaoh. Now, people that study this more than I do say that she was probably in her 20s. She would have been well-skilled because of who she worked for, who she belonged to before. She would have been a pretty young woman, and she's now traveling with Abraham and Sarah. And so here's this maidservant. She would have been one of Sarah's best maidservants. So Sarah says to Abraham, Verse 2, chapter 16, See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So bring that, let's open, unpack that a bit. Here's Hagar, and you were... Living in Egypt, you lived a pretty good, at that day, be a pretty good urban life. She would have lived in Pharaoh's circle. She would have been pretty well treated there. She would have had, at that day, probably a pretty good living. And uh, now she gets sent to the hillbilly country out there with Abraham. She's living in the tents. And so really it was a step down for her to live out in the countryside in tents with a bunch of farmers is where she is. And one day, Sarai comes up to her and says, Hagar, I'd like to talk to you. Could you come over here, please? And so Hagar comes over and says, yes, what could I do for you, mister? She says, well, as you know, Abram and I have been trying to have children. I'm now in my 70s. He's in his 80s, and we haven't had any children yet. And so I have a favor to ask of you. She goes, oh, what's that? Well, I would like you to uh, marry Abram, be his concubine, have a child, and then I have the baby. How's that? I mean, no, that was not Hagar's best day of her life. She's in her 20s, Abram's in his 80s, and her mistress is saying, uh, I want you to sleep with my husband, become his wife, and I, I'll have the baby. Now, that sounds really ridiculous to us, but actually in their time... They've studied different tablets from the culture and the times. Legally, she could do that. That was within the law for her to go and get one of her maidservants, let her be his wife, and she would get the child. That was the law of the day. And culturally, it was accepted as well. Our culture is different than their culture there. But that was at that time, that was acceptable. And so she plays that card. She says, I'd like to do that. I, I feel for Hagar. I mean, I think she's just caught in a, between a rock and a hard place. The only good news about it was that she would take a step up in status. No longer would she just be a maidservant. Now she would have the honor of carrying the child of the patriarch of the tribe, so to speak. She would have, she'd be carrying Abraham's child. So that was, that was the good news. She would be treated better for that. Well, Hagar gets pregnant. And I think, from what I read in scriptures, I think she was like, uh-huh. I got a bun in the oven. 
I am with child, na, 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 Sarah doesn't have one. I, I think there was a bit of that attitude that came through. Because Sarah was just, she had it with Hagar. She was just like, man, I can't stand this woman. She, she, it was her idea. But she is not happy about it at all. There were some cat fights in the house. I'm telling you, I don't know how Abraham did it. I think he was like, oh, my goodness. He, he was caught in the midst of this. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 5. Sarah says to Abraham, my wrong be upon you, exclamation mark. My wrong be upon you. You know that saying? It's your fault, Abraham. This is your fault. I don't know if that's ever happened in your house where somebody says, it's your fault. No, it's your fault, but I guess it happened in this house. I'm glad the Bible just tells the way it is, you know. It explains how human, how, how finite we really are. And here's Sarai saying, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. She says, I've had up to here, Abraham, with Hagar. She's pregnant. And she's walking around like she's God's gift to the world. And I've just had enough of it. I feel despised in her eyes. I am the queen bee. Her name means queen mother, Sarah. I am queen bee here. And I will not have this slave girl acting like she owns a place because she's carrying your baby. I've had enough of it. Now, please do something. Guys, don't you feel for Abraham right about here? I mean, he's just... So Abram, what does he say? Abram says to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. The ball's in your court. Do to her as you please. And really, that was the culture because Sarah was in charge of the women of the tribe. That was her role. She was empowered to do whatever she wanted with them. And so, verse 6 says, And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, what does that mean? Well, you can only imagine Sarah gave her a hard time. Such a hard time. Guess what? Hagar says, I'm out of here. I've had it up to here. I don't care. I am walking back to Egypt. It was a long way back. She's in Beersheba. Egypt's a long way. She would have to cross through the Sinai Peninsula under the Palestinian heat of about probably 40 degrees Celsius by herself, pregnant, swollen ankles, all the rest of it. On her own, but she so hates where she is, she says, I'm getting out of here. And so she leaves, pregnant, across the desert. But you know what, the whole time, guess what? In the background, Jehovah Ra'ah is watching over this situation. And he's caring about a little Egyptian maidservant. His eye is on the sparrow. And he's caring about her. That's your Jehovah. That's your shepherd. He's very interested in this woman. So, our first point in this nature of Jehovah is, number one, God comes looking for us when we're hurting. Hagar is hurting. There's no doubt about it. She leaves. And when she leaves, it says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring of the way to Shur. He comes looking for her. And guess what? When you're hurting and when you're in a mess, God comes looking for you. Is it her fault? I don't know. She probably inflated the situation and inflamed it by the way she acted. But she's in a tough spot. And sometimes you're in a tough spot. 
Man, I don't deserve what my boss did to me. I don't deserve what my family member did to me. It's not, why am I here? This isn't my fault, but I've paid a price for something I didn't do. I could hear Hagar feeling that. I could hear a pity party all the way through the desert as she's walking along. Man, I'm going back to Egypt. It's better than it was. I'm just going to get out of here. Sometimes we're like that. We've hit a hard spot in our life. We just say, you know what? That's it. I came to church. I tried church. And I dealt business with somebody in church. And I got messed up in that business. I'm out of here. I'm going back to the bar. I'm going back to my old life. I've had enough of this. And you just kind of pout and you walk out. It almost rhymes. You pout and you walk out. I should, I should, I'm going to make a note. I could use that next time. Pout and you walk out. Excuse me while I make notes. <laughs> Anyhow, God comes looking for her. And the angel finds her. He's looking for her. That's Jehovah Ra'ah, the God who comes looking for us. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to find and restore the lost. Matthew 18.12, if a shepherd has 100 sheep and one wanders away and is lost, what will he do? What will the Lord do? Won't he leave the 99 others and go out? into the hills to search for the lost one. This is your God. This is your Jehovah. This is your Father. This is your Father. We get all these misconceptions of God, all these, the world blasts us with all these different perceptions, but this is God. He's the one who comes into our lives and He finds us when things have gone wrong. As I was studying this, preparing this message, I thought about Mike, who comes to our church. A couple of years ago, they did an article in the paper about Mike because Mike demonstrated this attribute as a father. He's a dad, and he was acting like Jehovah Ra. He was taking on the characteristics the way we should of God. Mike's daughter was on drugs, and she was down somewhere by Hastings in Maine. And every day before Mike would go, he's a, he, he works on the docks. Every day before he go down the docks, he'd get in his pickup truck, and Mike would drive up and down the streets whether it be Cordova, whether it was Hastings Street, whether it was Maine, whether it was Abbott, he'd drive up and down those streets until he found his daughter. And his daughter was back in some back alley. He'd find his daughter. He'd hug her. He'd love her. He brought her some food, brought her a coffee, said, I love you. I love you. And then the next day, he'd go looking for her again. And the next day, he'd go looking for her again. Why? Because he loved his daughter. Was his daughter trapped? Yeah. Was she in a mess? Yeah. But this is what dads do. This morning, 9.30 service, Mike was sitting back there. Who was sitting beside Mike? His daughter. Who was sitting beside his daughter? Her boyfriend. How long have they been in church? Oh, about a year and a half. Baptized, changed. Because there was a dad who was with. There was a dad who saw. There was a dad who listened. He'd pick up his daughter. They'd sit in the truck. And he wasn't lecturing her. He was just loving her. A good father leads you beside the still waters. And when she was thirsty, she drank. Her life was changed. And today she's going on. It's a great picture of what God does for all of us. He comes looking for us. He found us. He found Hagar. He comes looking. Number two, God wants us to face the situation. The next thing the angel says to Hagar, Hagar calls her by name, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? 
Now, I happen to think that the angel of the Lord probably knew where she had come from and where she was going. I don't think the angel said, you know what, I'm just reporting here from heaven, and I got to fill in a few survey points before we finish up this little duty of mine. Could you tell me where you've come from? Uh, And uh, could you tell me where you're going? I'm just a little short on the facts as an angel from heaven. That angel knew exactly where she'd come from. The angel knew exactly where she was going. So why does the angel ask the question? The angel asked the question not for the angel's sake. It was for Hagar's sake. Hagar, where are you going? Wake up, Hagar. What's going on? The same thing when Adam was in the garden. And God said, Adam, where art thou? It wasn't because Adam was playing hide and seek with God and he tricked God and God couldn't find him anymore. And God's saying, oh, Adam, you fooled me. You got one over me. I can't find you. Come out, Adam, wherever you are. I don't know where you are. You got me. No, God knew exactly where Adam was. It was for Adam's sake. Adam, do you know where you are? Do you know what happened to you? Elijah was hiding in the cave. God said to Elijah in the cave, Elijah, why are you in the cave? God knew he was in the cave. He wanted... Elijah, he wanted Adam, he wanted Hagar, he wants us to come face to face with our situation. Why? Because we will not get to the top of our mountain unless we get over the situation. A number of years ago, I read a book called Into Thin Air. It's about climbing Mount Everest. And um, after reading that book, I've really become interested in Mount Everest. Not that I want to climb it, but I'm just interested in the mountain. And in the book, it talks about something called Hillary Step. Hillary, of course, the first man to climb Mount Everest. But near the top of the mountain, at about 28,000-some feet, they come to something called Hillary Step. And it's a very tactical mountain-climbing uh, exercise to get over. Today, there's lots of ropes and all the rest of it. Back then, with primitive equipment, they climbed Hillary Step. And to climb Hillary Step, is, it's tough. On one side of you, there is a cliff that drops off for one kilometer. So if you slip off that, it's like, we'll see you in heaven. Okay, so it's a long ways down. And this Hillary step, you, if you want to get to the top of the mountain, you have to get over the step. You've got to summon up your courage. And nowadays, they have so many lines coming down Hillary step. You're, it's kind of a roll of the dice. Make sure you pick the right line to go up because you're counting on it to get to the top. The point is, God brings us to a Hillary step, and we have to face some music and say, okay, I've got to get over this if I want to get to my destiny. And what God does to Hagar, he brings her right face to face with her situation, and he's saying to her, if you want to get to your destiny, you're going to have to get over this. And you know what he does? He sends her back to the tent with Abram and Sarah. Sometimes God sends you back to the thing you're running from because he knows until you face that, you're never going to accomplish the destiny for your life. Dan and Diane run Celebrate Recovery for us, and we know that from Celebrate Recovery. If we don't get past this denial, we'll never make it. As long as we camp here until we face our issue, we will not get victory in the rest of our lives. We just wander around and around that mountain, and we make no progress. We never reach the the altitude we never reach that destiny for our lives there was a a book that bill hybels came out with not too long ago called telling yourself the truth or a message he's preached telling yourself the truth and in that message he talked about a guy named max 
Max had a drinking problem, and he went into a recovery program, and they were sitting around a circle, and they were supposed to tell the truth about themselves, and they asked Max, who had a drinking problem, and he, his response was this. He said, well, I never drank that much. And uh, the leader said, now, come on, be honest. Uh, you know, you're in a treatment center for drinking. You weren't drinking Coke, so tell us really what's your issue. He said, I'm being honest with you. I've never really drank that much. And everybody had saying, signed an affidavit that they could get information if they needed to to help that person. And so they said, well, we're going to call your bartender. Kind of like playing, who wants to be a millionaire? You got a lifeline? Okay, so we're going to call the bartender. So in the midst of everybody, on the speakerphone, they call the bartender. And they dial up the bartender, Joe's Bar, how are you doing? They say, hey, do you know Max so-and-so? They go, oh, yeah, Max so-and-so. He's like a brother to me. He's here every day, has six martinis. Yeah, he's one of our best customers. The guy drinks like a fish. Okay, thank you very much. And they hang up the phone. Max is busted. And he goes, oh, okay, yeah, you know, you know he's, he's scrum. He's all right, I got a problem with drinking. And so they have another question. The question was, have you ever hurt anybody, a friend or family member, while you're drunk? And they go around the circle and come to Max, and they ask Max, and he said, yeah, I've never hurt anybody. I've never hurt anybody, not when I'm sober, and not when I'm drunk. I have four lovely children. I've never hurt my wife. I've never hurt my kids. You know, when you're running from an issue, you can come a pretty good liar. I've been fooled by the best of them. I've been fooled by the worst of them. Because you can lie really good. And Max, no, I, I've never heard anybody. I mean, he's just keeping a straight face. I've never heard anybody. And the leader calls his bluff. He says, you know, Max, we don't believe you. We're going to call your wife. So they use their second lifeline. They call his wife. And they get the wife on the line. And he said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, Max has, has he ever mistreated anyone in your family member when he was drunk? And she says, well, yes, he has. It happened just this last Christmas Eve. He took our nine-year-old daughter shopping on Christmas Eve, bought her a new pair of shoes. He's a generous man. On the way home, our little girl was sitting in the front seat with her new shoes. Max passed the bar, saw the cars of some of his buddies. He pulled in. It was cold, wintry day, 12 degrees Fahrenheit, high wind chill. He made sure all the windows were rolled up snugly, left the car running so the heater was blowing. And he said to our nine-year-old daughter, I'll be right back. You just play with your shoes. I'll be right back. When the bar started drinking with his buddies, he didn't come out of the bar until midnight. In that time, the vehicle had shut off. The windows became all frosted over, locked up tight so she couldn't get herself out of the car. When the authorities opened up the car, rushed her to the hospital, she was so badly frostbitten that her thumb and forefinger had to be amputated. And her ears were so damaged by the cold that she'll be deaf for the rest of her life. The wife described this to the group, and Max fell off his chair and started convulsing on the ground. He just couldn't bear telling himself the truth about what he had done. He couldn't face it. He wanted to live the rest of his life in some fantasy world of denial about what he had done. God loved him enough to bring him face to face with his Hillary step. Was it painful? Yes. But we won't get to our mountaintop. We won't accomplish what God has for our life unless God brings us face to face with this thing and says, you're going to have to get over this. We'd like to run. And some of us, we just keep running from it. But you have a father, Jehovah Ra'ah, who sees all. 
Oh, your friends might have seen it. Maybe there is no one to call that could even talk about it because you've kept it so secret. But God sees all. He sees it all. And like I said in the 1130 service, maybe you're thinking, nobody's ever going to find out. They will. He won't embarrass you. That's not what he's doing it for. He's not there to mock you, make fun of you. But he wants you to face it so that you can get over this step and get over to your victory. But as long as you run from it, he's not doing you any favors. Now, if God just brought you to Hillary's step, if he just brought you to this and said, you need to go back and said, have fun with that, good luck with that, and left you, that wouldn't be a good daddy. But if a good daddy said, you know what, listen, you need to go back, but I'm going to send my grace with you. You need to get over Hillary's step, but I'm going to be your shepherd, and I'm going to walk you up that step, and you're going to the other side because I'm with you. Now, how many know it's not so bad getting over the step? And that's what your God does. That's what your shepherd does. He doesn't just bring there and leave you. He says, let me walk you over the step. I will carry you if I need to. You know some of the way that people get over Hillary's step is the Sherpas carry them over. They tell me that you can literally, if you pay enough money, you can get a Sherpa to carry you to the top of Mount Everest if you want to. And some of us need our shepherd to carry us over that hard spot. And he will. He cares about you that much. That's why he goes to find that 99 and 90 leaves him to find the one. And you've seen the picture of the shepherd with the lamb around his shoulders because he's carrying you if need be so that you can reach your destiny. So he tells Hagar she's got to go back. Would have been hard. Of course it would have been hard. But the third point is this, that God extends grace to us. The angel added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. This was her grace. What gave her the strength? She left Abraham's tents, heads out to Egypt, ticked off, life's a mess, life dealt her a bad hand. She gets into this wilderness. She sits down by a spring. Angel Lord shows up and says, you need to go back, submit to Sarai. And she turns around, that's called repentance, and goes back to submit to Sarah. My Bible says it's the goodness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. She would not have turned around if God was not a good God. And we wouldn't respond unless we knew God was a good God. God says, my grace is sufficient to you. Paul said, my grace, the Lord had said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, you'll be strong. In other words, when you're weak, I'll show up and I'll help you over that step. I'll help you over that hurdle, but you're going to make it. No longer are you going to be held in bondage to your addiction, to your habit, to this hurdle. I'm going to help you over it so you can make it to the top of your mountain. That's your God. I like him. I like my shepherd. David liked his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That was a warm psalm. That's an endearing psalm. Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. So God extends grace to us. There's a guy coming to town. You probably know him, heard of him. He's going to do a big concert down at GM Place. His name's Bono. His group is called U2. And they had a conversation in his book about him. He's explaining his faith. And he says, it's a mind-blowing concept that God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. 
You're always like, oh, good karma, good karma. And Bono does a good job of just saying there's something different between karma and grace. He said this. What, uh, regarding this, he says, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me, he writes, that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all of that as you reap, so shall you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. Which, in my case, is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, he adds, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Isn't that good? Jesus didn't come to give us another religion. We didn't need another religion. He came to give us a relationship. He did that by being a shepherd, saying, I will take you to the Father. Man messes it up. For our Lord, it was very simple. I will give you a relationship with God the Father, and His name is Jehovah Ra'ah, the God who watches over you, the God who protects you, the God who sees you. He, if He cared about an Egyptian slave, mistreated and pregnant, in the middle of a forgotten desert, guess what? He cares about you when you're mistreated and forgotten in your desert. He is thinking about you and watching over you and extending your, His grace to you to get to the next step. So, lastly, God sees us and is listening. In Genesis sixteen eleven, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God shall hear, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Somewhere, maybe because she hung out in Abraham's tent, she knew how to pray, and she had been praying to God, so she names the child, as instructed by the angel, God shall hear. If you feel like God hasn't been hearing you, I want to give you good news this afternoon. God has heard your prayers. Be patient and just wait. Don't get ahead of God. It's right on time. God hasn't forgotten about you. Genesis 16, 13. She answered God by name, Hagar did, praying to the God who spoke to her and said, You're the God who sees me. This is where we have that word, Jehovah Ra'ah, the God who watches over me. Yes, he saw me, and then I saw him. You notice the order? He saw me, and then I saw him. He first loved us. He reaches out to us first, takes the first step. Daddies always take the first step. Daddies always reach out. They don't say, well, when you love me, kid, I'll love you. We, we'd never be loved. Right? Our daddies love us first, and then we respond with love. Your heavenly father is the same way. He loves us first, and we respond with love. Hagar says, you saw me, and I saw you now. He reveals himself to us. He's a daddy. He's a good father. I don't know what situation you're in today. Maybe you feel like you're as miserable as Hagar was, and you have situations that are really tough in your life. What do we get out of this message? Don't run. God's with you. He cares. He's watching over you. His eyes on you. He'll protect you. He'll care for you. He'll help you. His grace is there for you. Maybe you're facing a struggle. And you want to run again. Some people run to Vancouver. We often run into people and they come to Vancouver because they want to get away from Toronto. 
or they want to get away from they want to get away from South America or they want to get away from their mother-in-law or their mother or their uncle or aunt or their ex-husband or ex-wife or ex-boyfriend or something or job and they, they run to Vancouver I get to Vancouver and it's going to be okay I'm going to get a condominium I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to go to the Canucks game and everything's going to be great and they get here and they have this stunning revelation that wherever you are that's where you are that nothing magical happened in moving here I'm still myself and I still have the same problems that I did back there. The location didn't change it. Changing locations won't change your heart. What changes your heart is when you introduce Jesus to your heart and allow him to come live in your life. That's what changes it. When you say, Lord, you can be my shepherd. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.